Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture on this President's Day. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day as we kick off a new week. And uh, some different topics today, including... Now, here's, here's a story that for most of us, we don't have this issue. But if you are in certain parts of the West, this is a critical issue, a real threat to human life as well as uh, uh, livestock. We're talking about grizzly bears. That's right. We're going to talk with the executive vice president of the Montana Stock Growers Association on our program today and uh, get an update on the situation. What's the issue here? What's causing the problem? What's being done to address it? That's coming up later in today's program. We'll talk some markets with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. And we'll go over the uh, January numbers from the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer will be joining us a little bit later on in the program today. But we're going to kick things off with Phil Brasher from AgriPulse Communications. Phil, happy President's Day to you. Are things a little quieter in Washington, D.C. today? Well, definitely, and uh, probably a little bit this week. Uh, just hoping you don't ask me about grizzly bears. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> we haven't you talked know, about that a lot here in DC. No, uh, you've got a lot of other issues and uh, to to deal with there than grizzly bears, and uh, certainly, um, uh, <laughs> I know there's a lot of attention right now. Uh, Sarah Wyatt and others at a big crop insurance meeting going on in Florida. Um, Crop insurance every year, uh, there are challenges to that uh, big part of our ag safety net. And when the president's budget proposal comes out talking about uh, potential cuts in in crop insurance, that always gets people's attention, gets people talking, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Uh, You know, that's that's something that the the crop insurance industry uh, and farm groups uh, worry about constantly every year. Um, because even though these most of these things have not gone anywhere, uh, they can come up individually. I mean, to, if you look at the president's budget, it, uh, the White House basically throws in everything in terms of crop insurance payment limits, almost you know to get the biggest get the biggest number possible. But uh, you know, we've probably talked about it in the past. Uh, there was back in 2015 one of these uh, proposals. It's it's uh, actually in the president's budget and in there every year in terms of cutting returns to to crop insurance companies made it into a budget agreement and uh, was only taken out uh, at the last minute on a subsequent vote um, on the on really came down to a vote on the Senate floor a very close vote so they these things uh, they do live on and uh, when there's uh, uh, more concern about the deficit again, and I presume there will be, and uh, these things uh, uh, could very well show up uh, in Congress. As Senator Roberts has said, don't take crop insurance for granted, so uh, you take these issues seriously, so we'll be watching that. Speaking of big numbers, uh, an, an interesting court case, a $15 million award for compensatory damages, and then a federal jury awarding a Missouri peach farmer $250 million in punitive damages in a dicamba drift case against Bayer and BASF and 
this is, uh, you know, these numbers are, are, here's another case, you get these big numbers, and they usually wind up being somewhat smaller, but still, it uh, it does uh, grab headlines, and uh, of course, there'll be an appeals, in, uh, Bear saying it would appeal, and uh, saying they're disappointed with the, uh, with the verdict, uh, but that's certainly, this case and the whole dicamba issue is one to watch closely about where this goes forward yeah and this is of course bear is already dealing and they're in settlement talks over glyphosate roundups and uh of course that numbers have already got some judgments uh and those lawsuits and now comes along that that can be issue i know this has been a concern uh for a while and this is not the only. There are a series of uh, plaintiffs, the lawyers, uh, are looking for other lawsuits. There'll be other lawsuits. Uh, so this is bears watching as well. So these two, two these two herbicides, uh, dicamba, first glyphosate, now dicamba, both under really under fire uh, in the courts. Yeah, you always watch on these kind of cases. Do they set a precedent? And uh... Uh, where do we go from here? So we'll be watching that closely. Meanwhile, as on this President's Day, with so many still running for president, uh, a lot of big promises, uh, campaign promises being made. Uh, it seems like uh, some of the candidates are focusing on some issues important to rural America, such as as broadband and infrastructure. Yeah, a lot of promises. Uh, we had a big uh, town hall uh, yesterday in Las Vegas. Uh uh, sponsored in part by the Association of Equipment Manufacturers, number of farm equipment uh, uh, companies, part of that uh, organization. They really want to put the focus on infrastructure, and part of that is broadband. big part of that is, is rural broadband, actually. And uh, you had a number of the candidates back leading up to the Iowa caucuses made some promises in that area, and they uh, talked about them in more detail uh, yesterday in Las Vegas. So they really got on the record. Uh, uh, Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota, has made a really bold promise to uh, expand uh, broadband nationwide by 2022. That uh, <laughs> would be a remarkable feat, but uh, it shows you the emphasis they're putting on this and the attention they're getting it. Yeah, so, but it, it seems like but we've seen interest or or discussion about infrastructure heat up before, then cool off, heat up, cool off. But we, we have heard from Senator Grassley and others that that might be something that they would get done this year. Hard to imagine they get anything major done in an election year, but who knows? Yeah, it, would be, it would be quite a reach, uh, but it certainly is getting set up for the next Congress, depending on what happens. The big issue, as, as you know, is how to pay for it. Uh, and, uh, you know, where does the money come from? The, uh, the president's budget, one thing we haven't talked about, there's a, there's a trillion dollar, uh, infrastructure plan in there. Part of that would be, uh, one of the reasons for the offset, for the, for the spending cuts is to, to offset that. But, uh, you know, he, he, he's, uh, the president's on the table. His candidates are all on, are all on the table. So, uh, it's going to be a lot of, uh, could actually see something. I, it's really hard. I, I think we'll see pieces this year, possibly a water projects bill, also surface transportation, but in anything with this really big scope that we're talking about, that would probably have to wait until yeah. at least next year. Yeah, hard to imagine uh, in this year of this environment and with an election that uh, 
major right. legislation will get through, but you said maybe some pieces could get done. All right, Phil, thanks again for joining us on this President's Day. We appreciate it. Great to be here. Thanks. Take care. Phil Brasher with AgriPulse Communications. Up next, we'll look at the latest Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer numbers. What are they telling us? These would be the January numbers. Are farmers more optimistic or not? We'll talk about that next with Michael Langemeyer, Purdue Ag Economist. Stay with us on AOA. Farmers can't choose the weather, trade policy, or market prices. But they can choose the most advanced dicamba with confidence. Ingenia Herbicide has the lowest volatility of all dicamba salts for more successful on-target applications. And it's straight from the dicamba experts, BASF. So make the confident choice for your soybean crop. Talk to your BASF rep or authorized retailer. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA restricted-use pesticide. Additional state restrictions may apply. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, let's take a look at the January numbers for the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. Joining us again is Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer. And Michael, I see the numbers were higher in January. I have to believe that has something to do with the the trade deals that were uh, finalized or close to finalizing at the end of last year, that probably uh, did have some impact, didn't it? Oh, definitely. And, and the things one uh, was just about the time we were asking, we were asking people about the, about the sediment uh, doing the survey. And so I think that also had a big impact, but certainly uh, the, the agreements that are moving forward with Mexico and Canada, uh, there's been some discussion with Japan. And then, and then the recent discussion with China was, was, Definitely a positive influence on the barometer in January. A 17-point jump. That's pretty significant. It, it certainly is. And we were at a pretty high level in November and December already. And so, and so the fact that we, we jumped up to 167 is, uh, is, is certainly, uh, certainly uh, interesting. It'll be interesting to also to see as the next few months go by, uh, depending on how much uh, uh, – activity we see from those trade deals if those numbers can stay up there or not that's definitely the case and when we when we look at the ag economy barometer we always break it into two sub indices uh, as you know the index of current conditions and the index of future expectations and the index of current conditions has been relatively flat the last two or three months and so the big jump in the index in january was related to future expectations and those questions are related to looking at how things might look five years out uh, certainly, some of the wind may come out of that sale uh, if China doesn't actually sign on the dotted line uh, and buy more soybeans. And so we'll be watching that very carefully. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, there's a difference between how they feel about things right now and how they think things will be down the road a little bit. That's definitely the case, and and, and particularly with soybeans, that's just something we're going to have to watch. Now, another thing that that's that's that it's worth worth a uh, remembering here is when we were doing this survey in mid-January, soybean prices were relatively stronger. Um, you know, after 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 the Phase One agreement was announced, soybeans have weakened quite a bit, and so it'll, it'll be very interesting to see how that impacts the February numbers, uh, which we, we we were surveying last week, and so we'll be summarizing those in a couple weeks. You know, that's uh, kind of something you have to factor in when you do a survey like you do, because you could talk to a farmer 
today and if the price if if markets were up their mood would be a little different than it would be tomorrow say if the if the markets go down right i mean it can change that quickly it can change pretty quickly but but having said that we've done some analysis looking at looking at whether the whether the index tracks closely with corn and soybean prices and yes there's some relationship there uh but but it's more important to look at big policy uh policy things like trade uh, you know, government programs; those kinds of things tend to move the index uh, much more directly uh, than than price changes. Yeah, and I, I've noticed that the meetings I've been going to this winter, and there is an optimism. There's at least a hope now that things are going to get better. Not knowing how long that may take, but when you when you sign some of these deals, some of the things we've been talking about and have been worked on for months and months, when you finally see at least uh, deals being signed. And that's not, you know, that's different than them actually uh, buying products yet. But when you get the deal signed, it gives hope. It gives some optimism. And that's certainly the case also when you look at uh, cash rent and land values. We've been asking questions related to cash rent and land values the last several months. And there's still there's still about 10, 10 to 12 percent that think that cash rents and land values are going to decline uh, during the next year. Uh, but the percent that think they're going to be higher uh, has, has strengthened a bit. Uh, the, the, for example, uh, those that think land values are going to increase in the next 12 months is now 16%. Uh, obviously, overwhelmingly, people think that land values are going to be the same. But the fact that there's a, there's a few more that are, that, are, that are optimistic with regard to land values is, is really telling. We're talking with Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer about the January numbers for the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer. Now, you ask uh, farmers about their their future plans for their farming operations. What did they say? I was a little surprised at these numbers. They're 44% said they have no plans to grow, and another, another 12% uh, say they have plans to, to reduce their farm size. And, and we only survey full-time farmers, and so fully 56% said they either have no plans to grow or uh, they plan on reducing their farm size. And, and I attribute that relatively high number uh, in terms of no growth and reducing their farm size to the tight margins that we've seen since 2014. I think a lot of farms have really drawn down their working capital, and and because of that, until their working capital increases, they're just not going to be able to grow. Uh, And and, and so I I was a little surprised that the numbers were as high as they were uh, in terms of those that don't expect to grow, but but I I really do think it's related to working capital. Yeah, kind of a feeling of just needing to stabilize, recover, stabilize before you kind of think about expanding. Yeah, because obviously if you're going to expand, you need a down payment for land. You need to, you know, you need a, a down payment for machinery. And if you don't have that, you just have to kind of wait and see attitude. You also asked them about uh, which USDA program they would be participating in. What did they say? Yeah, and the word here is uncertainty. Uh, this was in this was in mid January, and so we'll see if, if mid February results are different. But most of the people had not decided uh, what program they were looking at. Uh, the overwhelming choice, uh, uh, you know, that had decided was PLC for corn. Uh, PLC for corn was at twenty three percent. Arc County and Arc Individual were were lower than that, but there was still a, a large percentage of people uh, that were still making up their mind. And and I think the reason why. Uh, the corn decision is relatively difficult this time. Is last time in the 2014 farm bill, at least for most of the car, corn bill, Art County looked like such a natural choice. Uh, this time, I think it's a much 
a tougher decision uh, depending on the farm circumstances. And I think you could you could uh, uh, you could argue that that uh, PLC Arc County or Arc individual might fit certain farm situations. You know, looking ahead, next time we talk, we'll be looking at February numbers. Now you're starting to get closer planning time, you know, weather factors, flooding conditions, all those kind of things. So we'll kind of probably figure and weigh in on their uh, their moods, their attitudes. Definitely. And, and, you know, and one of the things that we'll be trying to get a little more information on is, is planting intentions. We'll have some questions that don't directly ask about that, but we'll get a little better feel. Uh, for this corn versus soybeans uh, in the next survey. Yeah, and that that's a big question. It's always a big question this time of year, but I think especially coming off a year like last year and some of the challenges f- faced this year. But still, when we yeah, look when at it overall, acres to prevent plants. Yeah, you're gonna. Yeah, you're, it's gonna be some. T- there's gonna be some tough decisions there really tough decisions and how many of those acres can be planted this year or will they be flooded again uh so your ag economy barometer rose to 167 in january a 17 point jump from december is that one of the bigger month-to-month jumps you've seen one it's one of the larger ones it's it's one of the larger uh indices that we've also seen and we started you know when we started this uh, we started this in, 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 in a period where uh, there were some pretty tough times in agriculture, and so, and so it's one of the, the highest indices we've seen during the life of the survey. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, since you've been doing this, it's been in this ag economic downturn. Um, we hope to be seeing us coming out of that hopefully soon, but this kind of gives us an idea how farmers think about when that might be coming, and as we said, it's we keep focusing on the future. How far out do do farmers feel that's going to be before we see that turnaround? Yeah, that, that'll, that'll definitely be something to to, to uh, closely watch. So these trade deals were a big part of uh, the seventeen point jump. Do you think there was anything else in there that factored into such a big jump? I think I think there's a couple things that are that are kind of hangovers from the fall. Uh, one of them is I. I and I, I know this is not necessarily true everywhere in the Corn Belt, but certainly in the eastern Corn Belt here, and even even to some extent, uh, Iowa and Nebraska, I, I think uh, yields were better than we thought they were going to be. And so I, I think that had a positive influence in the past. That's had a positive influence on the index. And so I, I think that, that, was, that, that, was, that was definitely the case in the eastern Corn Belt. And so I think that, that helped sediment uh, quite a bit. Uh, the, the fact that we did have a stronger yield than we thought we were going to be. And I think to, uh, for some people, prices were better than we thought they were going to be uh, you know, several months ago. And, and uh, you know, soybeans have slipped recently, but uh, they, they, they had a period there where they were, they were fairly strong uh, going into early January. And I, I think that really did impact uh, the January survey numbers. All right, Michael, we'll look forward to talking with you next month and see what uh, farmers uh, had to say in uh, this month of February. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Okay. Take care. All right. Purdue Ag Economist Michael Langemeyer. All right. Up next, parts of the West, a really serious situation, a danger from grizzly bears. We'll talk with the Executive Vice President of the Montana Stock Growers Association about that issue. That's coming up next. Stay with us on AOA. There is more than one way to measure success. Knowing how to measure success on your soybean acres? That's smart. 
In 2019 trials, Credenz CZ0419 GTLL had a 2.3 bushel per acre advantage over a competitive Asgro variety in North Dakota. So plant your sign of success. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Credenz for a precise variety that fits your field. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, for most of us, the list of things we're concerned about day to day does not include grizzly bears. But if you live in certain parts of the western United States, that would be a a concern that's pretty high up on your list. Joining us now to talk about the issue is Jay Bodner, Executive Vice President for the Montana Stock Growers Association. Jay, thanks for joining us. How big of an issue, how big of a a threat, a concern is this for uh, folks in the western part of the United States? Well, thanks, Mike. Appreciate the opportunity to visit a little bit about this issue. Yeah, certainly grizzly bears is a raising concern. Uh, among livestock producers and really just um, the recreationalists here in Montana and I know Wyoming and Idaho specifically. Um, we have a growing population. They're expanding their territory. Um, you know, from a livestock perspective, we have seen uh, a significant increase in depredations uh, on livestock by grizzly bears and uh, and another uh, a number of just human conflicts. You know, I've, I've talked to at least a couple of ranchers that been you know, just rounding up their cattle and been charged by grizzly bears on their horses. So significant, significant issue in Montana. I've heard as well that uh, families are even concerned about letting their children play outside at certain times for fear of these grizzly bears. Yeah, you know, along the Rocky Mountain front for us, um, we do have, you know, significant populations of grizzly bears that are moving out into really just rural, rural landscapes and uh you know it's not uncommon to see them grizzly bears in town and uh they've just kind of uh certainly you know they're making their homes out on the plains and uh that that's right in our shelter belts and right in our backyard so it is a real real major human safety concern for for people out there uh in montana and like i said along the the western front here okay so what's What's the cause here? Was it is it uh, about efforts to protect the grizzly bears, and now they've grown in population? They're 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 now they're searching for food. That's why they're coming into these areas. Is that what's behind this? Well, I think what we see in Montana is they were put in under the Endangered Species Act in '75. Uh, there was a significant effort to increase their population. Uh, there were protections that were put in place and virtually all those worked that population along we have two different populations one in the yellowstone area and one uh, along our uh, northern continental divide population and we've had you know roughly about a thousand bears in the northern continental and about 800 in yellowstone so they're they're growing at about three or four percent each year and, and roughly, they're just running out of room, so they're expanding their, tor- to their territory. And so they're just moving out, um, you know, into new areas where they haven't, where we haven't seen them in the last hundred years. So really, that's what we see is just an expanding population. They're oversaturated, and so uh, they're forced to, to go look for new habitat. Are they still on the endangered species list? 
Unfortunately, yes. Uh, we've tried to get them off uh, the Endangered Species Act in our Yellowstone population. We've had them listed, then delisted, and then with court listed again. And it, it's just been a seesaw of, unfortunately, we just uh, we can't get them delisted. The recovery population was supposed to be 500. We're virtually twice that. And just, you know, the, the setup through litigation in court, it just has been unfortunate, but we just can't get them delisted. And uh, it's a real frustration for just um, certainly ranchers, but I think a, a wider population out there. It's not how the Endangered Species Act was really designed to work. We're talking with Jay Bodner, Executive Vice President of the Montana Stock Growers Association. And Jay, in this case, it's grizzly bears, but we've seen it with other uh, species. It seems like the Endangered Species Act, in many cases, works in protecting whatever that species is. But then uh, we can we have trouble uh, deciding when it's time to take them off of the list. And that's what you're talking about here. What is that threshold and why is it so difficult? Well, tell us about the efforts uh, to try to address this now. Well, there's a couple of things that we're really we face. Um, when you initially put them on a endangered species list, they they do have a recovery goal. They put a map up, and and we virtually have met all of those with grizzly bears. We did with wolves also. And uh, but the steps that follow next is that uh, basically they get litigated in court, and then if you have a uh, a judge that's um, sympathetic to those species, then he can come up with you know virtually any kind of you know, potential roadblocks that put them back on the endangered species list. And and in that court system really has been um, one of the major hurdles to get them off 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 the list. And they're really the only reason we got wolves off in Montana and Idaho and Wyoming was congressional legislation. And, you know, unless we have some modernization of the ESA nationally, uh, we'll probably still face these same kind of hurdles to try to get animals off these lists when they do meet those recovery goals. Do you have numbers as far as uh, livestock losses due to grizzly bears? Yeah, in well, just, I do in Montana. Um, we, we lose about, well, what we do face is we have, you know, large remote country. Um, we, we lose about, I don't know, about 400 animals we did lo- lose last year, and that's just confirmed or probable losses. And that includes cattle and sheep, uh, a few guard dogs and a few horses. Uh, but And that's by wolves and grizzly bears. But the majority of that is really by grizzly bears now. Uh, what, one of the things we did face just this last grazing season, last summer, was it you know, we'll have range riders out there. They're out there with those cattle, but it's big country. It's remote. Um, and, and one producer, a couple, there were three producers together. They, they confirmed 22 losses, but they came out 50 calves short. So we know that that additional 30 calves and the majority of those were also lost to depredation, but there was no sign, no, uh, couldn't find any carcasses. And so that's a cost by that producer that he, it's borne by them specifically. And, and there's no compensation for the for that situation, which is, you know, extremely unfortunate. So it's going to take legislative action to address this. Well, it would go two ways. I think there's, you know, potentially if we could go if we could win in the courts, that's an all, always an option. Uh, the second option would be if we looked at some minor tweaks, and it would really take minor tweaks to the ESA, uh, but would be difficult. Or if you just 
had legislation nationally that would delist grizzly bears. And, and that would once again also be very difficult to accomplish, but certainly an avenue that we'd like to see maybe pursue. You mentioned going down this path with wolves. Uh, is there any, are there similarities there that maybe you could get to a resolution as you did with wolves? You know, it would be our hope that you could really show that um, we've been successful. We should actually take this on as a success. Grizzly bears had a low population. We put a lot of protections in place, and we were successful. We should celebrate that um, and, and, and allow them to go off the list and allow states to manage these wildlife. And that's really how it's designed is the, you know, ESA protects them, but once we hit those, those recovery goals and turn those over to the states, the states allow... Uh, it's really their job to manage these wildlife, and they can do it, and we've shown that. And so I guess that's what we'd like to see in the future is, you know, that that possibility to move forward. We know that there will continue to be conflicts with grizzly bears, but when there really is a problem bear, you know, those are the ones you want to deal with. If they don't get into trouble, then that's fine. We'll just allow them to live in their habitat, and and and, you know, that's kind of what we'd like to see. I was going to ask you, how – if you if you could construct a management policy or program for this situation, what would that entail? Well, we know that similar to wolves, um, you know, initially it was three strikes and you're out, and so you have to um, have an animal that you know uh, has a depredation, has a depredation, and then on the third one, then you either remove them, lethally remove them, or trans, you know transplant them or translocate them somewhere else. And, and what we've seen is uh, those things don't work that well. Um, once they get, those animals get into trouble, uh, simply moving them to a different area, they continue to get into trouble or they come back. And so I think that process is something we need to get away from, certainly also with grizzly bears. We did with wolves really early and it proved to be uh, beneficial. So it's only those animals that um, you know, our, our conflict-type animals, those animals need to be dealt with appropriately and quickly and, and so they don't, you know, continue to cause problems. So that's what we'd like to see in the future. It would just seem when you have a situation that is not only a, a threat to animals but a threat to human life, uh, that would, uh, you know, get some people to take notice and say we do need to address this. So uh, I guess the effort continues then. Yeah, it certainly does. I mean, we do have a number of, unfortunately, hunter conflicts with bears every year. Somebody, um, there's at least two or three maulings every year. Um, those don't always result in the death of a hunter, but um, it's significant, significant injuries to those people. And it, it and we're really starting to see it, um, you know, it's, it's a challenge to get for us, for the livestock, these range riders that are going to ride in that remote country, um, not very many people want to put their, you know, their life at risk to do those kind of those kind of jobs, and so um, that's an, another significant challenge that we face. Well, Jay, thanks for being with us and bringing this to our attention. Like I say, for many of us, it's just not something that we think about, not really on our radar. But uh, I wanted to to let our listeners uh, know about this situation and what's going on. Thank you very much for being with us. Yep, thank you, Mike. Appreciate the opportunity to visit about it. Take care. Jay Bodner, Executive Vice President of the Montana Stock Growers Association. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA.
There's more than one way to measure success. Knowing how to measure success on your soybean acres? That's smart. In 2019 trials, Credenz CZ1859 GTLL had a 2.9 bushel per acre advantage over a competitive Asgro variety in South Dakota. So plant your sign of success. Ask your BASF seed advisor about Credenz for a precise variety that fits your field. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. So as the markets take a break for this President's Day, a long weekend, what can we expect uh, headed towards spring? Let's talk with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. Matt, thanks for joining us. Uh, Well, soybean market has been in the news here the last few days before we took the long uh, weekend. Uh, What are your thoughts going on there? Of course, it's that time of year. we got all these uh, South American beans on the market. Uh, What do you see with the soybean market? I think the soybean market had gotten oversold for sure. Uh, you know, uh, there's not a lot of reasons, I think, why a person would want to buy beans, given given the fact that, uh, you know, you've got an awfully big crop coming out of South America, and, you know, our forecasts are for pretty good size acreage out of the U.S., but then, you know, we rallied nine days straight, you know, and then Friday, of course, we fell back off just a bit, but, you know, we got a nice little 20-cent rally out of the deal, plus, just in the you know last couple of weeks and so you know i mean i think that the whenever i'm looking at bean prices uh, we got a little bit of a bounce but we probably shouldn't expect a really big bounce unless you would see some weather uh, situations unfold uh, south america looks to be okay for now i don't think that there's going to be any big story come out of there so uh, you know unless we see some sort of chinese demand uh, uh, that we're maybe not expecting right now i don't know that you're going to see any uh, large-scale bounce which is frustrating because we are setting uh, crop insurance this month so what do you think as we're into our annual uh, debate about what's the market going to buy as far as acres, corn or soybeans? What are your thoughts? Uh, right now, we're kind of undecided, it seems like. Yeah, it is. You know, so, you know, you're right in that 2.35 to 1 area. And so there's really no uh, major uh, uh, way to look at it that, that you would say, you know, is a glaring uh, situation. So I don't know. Here's how I look at it, though, Mike. Whenever it's kind of status quo and money is extremely tight, and I think there will be some, I'm not saying a lot, but there's going to be some guys that's probably going to be pushed more towards soybeans uh, than corn, you know, because it just doesn't take as much to put beans in the ground as what it does corn. And so, uh, you know, I think that your bean acreage is going to be fairly robust. You know, there's a a large part of uh, the corn belt in the upper Midwest into the Dakotas that uh, there's a lot of question marks. You know, this spring is certainly looking like it's going to be very similar to last year. And without the large-scale rally, I don't think you'll be able to get people talked into uh, considering planting corn again. So, you know, I still think you're going to get up to that 93, 94 million acres on corn. But uh, uh, for you to get much above that, you really need to see some sort of strength in this market. And right now, it's just pretty bad. Now, we know in parts of the Midwest, you and I are in Illinois, uh, we have, we've seen more field work get done this last fall than we saw a year ago. So uh, in that way, a little bit ahead of the game this spring than we were a year ago. And we know farmers like to plant corn in this part of the country. Do you expect uh, uh, that to have an impact on their decisions this spring? 
I think there'll be some areas like you uh, would indicate that there'll be some extra corn acres. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I think there's other areas where they may just not be able to plant corn at all. So, um, you know, I, I do think that there's going to be some areas, though, where you're going to go fairly heavy corn. You know, we have a lot of opportunities in here to sell corn about four bucks, and I'm not so sure we're not going to have more by any means, but uh, we have some se- several opportunities. And then whenever you look at what fertilizer prices are doing right now and diesel fuel, uh, you know, you could book in the last couple of weeks diesel as cheap as what you could over the last year. So uh, fertilizer is quite a bit cheaper than what it was just a year ago. So at uh, 390 corn, you know, 388 and three quarters, I guess, where we close Friday, you know, at that price, you can uh, buy more inputs than what you could a year ago. So you, you've got to keep that in the back of your head, too. We still got a lot of grain in the bin. How do you see that playing out as far as moving that or hanging on to it? That's a really tough uh, situation. You know, the thing is, Mike, I've said all along, if you have another late spring, there's no question that good quality corn late in the summer is going to be worth some money. I mean, I don't know what the future is going to be doing, but I think your processors and end users, they're going to need that corn. Uh, But here's the thing. I mean, how many guys are going to have and gals are going to have corn that can keep that long? You know, I mean, a lot of this corn has not been in good shape. Even in our part of the world, you had to dry a lot uh, of the corn. So, 22 to 25 percent corn uh, you know typically you'll be able to let it keep just a little bit better than 25 and above but still whenever you dry all of that corn you have pockets in the field that were drier than the others uh, coming in of course with all the replant you're going to see that uh, then the corn's just not keeping and so right now what do you do as far as pricing your corn you know the thing is uh, i don't look for any big move in the futures market uh, i think that you're going to support flat cash values though so if I've got corn in the bin, as long as I can keep it, I might try to hold off for a bit, uh, you know, hope for some sort of a bounce in here, maybe do some, some Chinese demand or something. But uh, if it's in the elevator, I, I guess I have a hard time thinking that any sort of price appreciation, even in basis, uh, would be able to cover my, uh, you know, my storage costs. Another big question this year will be those prevent plant acres coming back into production. Um, what what do they get planted to? And in some cases, will they get planted this year or not? Because we're already looking at some uh, flooding or flood-threatened areas already. Right. And so I, I guess the way that I look at it, you know, the producers that I talk to in the part of the world where you typically see the most prevent plant are telling us that, um, you know, they're going to have to see a major price rally to get, you know, talked into trying something again. Now, if it was prevent plant last year, there's a pretty good chance that you're looking at a lot of prevent plant in that particular area again this year, whether you're talking North Dakota or South Dakota. So I think that uh, if those acres do come back in, again, it's just going to be one of those questions of which way do you want to roll the dice. Uh, you know, if you do get some business out of the PNW and maybe that basis starts to get a little better, and then maybe you'll be able to see some producers get more excited about planting corn. But, you know, I think when in the long run, you're, you're looking at probably 178 180 million acres uh, you know combined and i think that uh, you know more of that's going to go to corn than beans i just don't think it's going to be a substantial uh, percentage a lot of questions here it is still only mid-february but uh, still a lot of questions uh, we're looking for answers for as we move ever closer to spring matt always good to talk with you thanks a lot hey thanks for having me take care matt bennett with ag market With that, we wrap things up for today on this President's Day. Thank you very much for joining us. Have a great day, everyone. You're listening to AOA.
Weeds want to restrict your freedom and crush the spirit of your soybeans. Never fear. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of superior weed control is here with Liberty Herbicide. Stand proud with greater application flexibility, unmatched convenience, and excellent performance combined with the Liberty Link, Liberty Link GT27, and Enlist E3 trait systems. And it has no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Talk with your BASF rep or authorized retailer about Liberty Herbicide. Always read and follow label directions.